Hello and welcome to Legal Frontiers, the new podcast from the School of Transnational Law at Peking University, China. My name is Stephen Minas. I'm a member of the faculty at the School of Transnational Law, STL, and it's a delight to welcome you to our first episode. The School of Transnational Law is based in the Chinese Technology Center of Shenzhen. This location, combined with its unique uh, curriculum, bringing together Western law, Chinese law, as well as international and comparative law, uh, provides a unique vantage point from which to research uh, the current major developments in law and legal practice. And of course, these are not limited to developments in China and broader East Asia, but they include the intersection between law and technology and how this affects uh, major challenges of urbanization, climate change, global health, and many others. The interaction of diverse legal systems and cultures, and of course, trends and developments in international law itself. And the aim for this podcast is to provide research-based analysis on all of these questions. Uh, it is aiming at exploring legal frontiers. And by that, we mean both frontiers in the sense of cross-border, transnational legal problems and developments, uh, but also frontiers of legal research and practice. Now, the podcast will include interviews, presentations, panel discussions uh, from our faculty, our visitors, uh, as well as others who are involved around the world uh, in dealing with these questions. Uh, we aim for the podcast to be a platform uh, for discussion. Law and lawyers have a role to play in each of the great challenges and controversies of our time, uh, often whether they like it or not, and dialogue and debate are necessary now more than ever. So I'm joined today by my colleague, uh, Professor Mark Feldman, a fellow member of the faculty at the School of Transnational Law, STL. Uh, Mark, welcome. Thank you, Stephen. So it's, it's been a very disrupted time, Mark, for all concerned. And of course, the, uh, the unprecedented situation that we're all experiencing also applies to lawyers and, and law professors and arbitrators. So I just wonder if you had any reflections about how the current pandemic is affected, uh, affecting our professional area and, and indeed the area also of arbitration. Sure. Well, I've seen profound changes both on the, the law teaching side and on the arbitration side. Uh, what I've been seeing on the arbitration side is much of the arbitration world has simply moved online. And, and I think if we, if we think about the arbitration world as it existed in 2019 and we compare it to, let's say, as it existed in, in 2000, I think the arbitration world in 2019 largely resembled the world of 2000 but I think the arbitration world in 2020 is a completely different place. And we see merits hearings, uh, we see basically everything being done now virtually. 
And that, of course, raises issues of due process. I've heard a lot of concerns about, in particular, the, the integrity, ensuring the integrity of, of, let's say, witness testimony. And so there are very real due process concerns that need to be addressed. But at the same time, I, I think that, in general, the community is facing the reality and has adjusted to the reality. And, and I think that when we do come out of this crisis, uh, there certainly will be an interest in returning to some extent to the international arbitration world as, as it existed in the early 21st century. But I don't think we will ever completely return to the world of 2019. I think we have left the international arbitration world of 2019 behind. And so there are very real concerns, but there are also incredible opportunities that this is creating. And, and I think in particular for users, I think over the past several years, users in the abstract have had uh, some idea about the, the benefits of online dispute resolution. But I think now users will be making far more informed decisions when, when choosing between online dispute resolution and in-person. So, so I think that there are incredible opportunities, but we do need to think about the due process issues at the same time. It has been interesting to see with uh, relative speed, uh, a large number of arbitral institutions releasing this uh, joint, joint statement referring to making the best use of uh, digital technologies uh, for working remotely. So there, is, there seems to be both in terms of the institutions, but also in terms of some of the, uh, the leading arbitrators who have commented on this in recent weeks, uh, a willingness uh, to work with technological necessity uh, at, the, at the same time, hopefully being aware of some of those uh, due process considerations that, uh, that you refer to. Right, and I think the, the joint statement by the institutions that you mentioned, I, that is significant in my view. And, and as you know, very strong language in the statement supporting online dispute resolution and making clear that the institutions are there to support online dispute resolution in any way they can. Turning now to the potential impact of the current difficulties on substantive developments, uh, of course, if we look at the field of international investment law and investment dispute resolution, there is quite a lot of speculation now about the kinds of disputes that might be, um, might be implicated by the current developments. Uh, obviously, it's, it's too early to tell in most cases, but would you have any preliminary thoughts about uh, potential impact in that domain? Right. Well, there certainly has been discussion about potential claims that, that might be filed, challenging measures uh, in response to the current crisis. And I think in general, as a substantive matter within international investment law, you have well-developed doctrines of police powers, of necessity. And I, I don't want to be providing legal advice, I, but, but certainly when thinking about those doctrines and thinking about the regulatory space that governments are accorded, when responding in particular to uh, situations of, of grave, raising grave public health concerns, right? So I, I think from the perspective of governments, they certainly will have uh, defenses available to them, but that does not mean that claims will not be filed. So I, I, think, the, I think it's likely that we will see uh, some claims challenging some of these measures, but at the same time, I think governments uh, will have defenses that they can raise pointing to uh, the gravity of the situation and the need to have uh, flexibility in responding to uh, 
not only a grave situation, but a rapidly changing one. Indeed, and, and it is perhaps good to note that uh, this podcast episode, in common with all podcast episodes we'll be doing, does not contain uh, legal advice. Uh, now, Mark, you, um, you wrote recently an interesting paper on the topic of a connectivity and decoupling Belt and Road dispute resolution in a fractured trade environment. Uh, can I just ask you, what, what was the impetus to uh, studying this area and, and producing this, this draft paper? Right, so I, I basically saw two competing trends when you think about international economic law and the development of international economic law and US-China relations. And, and so one was this trend of what has come to be known as decoupling. And, and I think of decoupling as, as basically a, a sharp reduction in the economic independence uh, between in, in the US-China relationship. And, and there, I'll, I'll have a bit more to say about decoupling in, in a moment, but so I saw on the one side, this tendency for the two economies to separate from one another. But at the same time, you have China's Belt and Road Initiative and, and a core policy goal driving that initiative is, is what China refers to as connectivity. And, and this idea of, of bringing different jurisdictions together, bringing institutions together. And, and so I wanted to take a close look at these two, what can be seen as competing forces, uh, these forces of decoupling and of connectivity at the same time. Uh, on the decoupling side, I, I think that we've seen building blocks in place for some time, uh, going back at least a decade. It was about 10 years ago that the US, uh, along with a number of Asia Pacific uh, states launched the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. Uh, now, there have been different, those, the TPP agreement has been characterized in different ways. At times, it's been characterized as excluding China. Uh, the agreement did not exclude China. It was negotiated on what's known as an open accession basis. All APEC members uh, were able to join the agreement if they wanted. China is an APEC member. But at the same time, it was understood that, that many of the disciplines in the agreement, in particular disciplines on state-owned enterprises, uh, reduced the likelihood of a state like China joining. But we see the TPP launched, those negotiations, negotiations launched, launched about a decade ago. A few years later, you had the launch of the RCEP negotiations, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, uh, led by ASEAN, but with China playing a very important role and not including the US. So in terms of building blocks of decoupling, you had on the TPP side, negotiations being led by the US. On the RCEP side, negotiations being led by ASEAN and to some extent by China. And, and then uh, in 2013, 2014, you have China announcing the launch of the, the AIIB based in Beijing, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, soon followed by the initial announcements of the launch of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so, so I think looking at all of those developments, TPP, RCEP, AIB, and then BRI, uh, we do see building blocks in place for the U.S. and China going in different directions. But, but at the same time, the AIB is multilateral in nature and, and certainly open to all institutions, all, all countries who might be interested. And, and certainly with respect to BRI, China has made clear that, uh, that BRI is also open. So we have these developments that on the one 
hand can be seen as advancing decoupling, but at the same time, at least in the abstract, are available on a global basis. Uh, so, so again, I, I think the paper is looking at these developments and, and addressing these, these two competing directions of, of separating, but at the same time of greater integration. So it's interesting then to reflect that many of these building blocks of decoupling that you identify actually predate by some years the, the term of President Trump, when, when of course uh, this, this narrative of decoupling has become so, so very prominent, at least in the West. Uh, the, the, other, the other side to it, of course, is, is connectivity. And, and you write in particular about uh, the role of the Belt and Road Initiative, in, in particular the area of uh, dispute resolution. Uh, before we turn to that, uh, anybody who studies or, or writes about the Belt and Road, I suppose, has to arrive at some kind of view of what the Belt and Road is. And, and there are many such, such views. So, if you were asked to define the Belt and Road, how would you, how would you define it? Right, I, I think the key is to think of Belt and Road as a framework. It is a skeletal framework uh, that involves infrastructure development, infrastructure financing, uh, with the financing coming from, from Chinese institutions, but also coming from the multilateral AIB. So I, it is a framework, and if we're looking for details, uh, you're not going to find a lot of details. I, I think it's more of a vision, and, and the vision is uh, achieving greater connectivity through infrastructure development, and, and again, with the financing coming from either Chinese institutions or a multilateral institution like the AIB. One of the impacts of the Belt and Road that you identify is in the area of transnational dispute resolution. Uh, so you look at a number of different areas of dispute resolution, whether that's in uh, investment arbitration, uh, commercial arbitration, uh, commercial courts, uh, a prominent recent trend. Uh, but, but how would you summarize the impact of the Belt and Road so far on, on dispute resolution? Well, I, I think in terms of the volume of disputes, it is certainly, if, if you have a greater number of infrastructure projects, that will give rise to a greater number of infrastructure disputes. Uh, so we can expect to see a rise in the volume of disputes. And I think the international arbitral institutions have been very aware of this, that you've seen institutions in Hong Kong, institutions in Paris, uh, very out in front in, in setting up special commissions, special committees focused on Belt and Road dispute resolution. The, the ICC in particular has offered very specific guidance on mediation and, and the language from the ICC, the recommendation from the ICC is that for Belt and Road related disputes that mediation should always be considered. So, so we see the leading international arbitra arbitral institutions very focused on Belt and Road and I think it's fair to say in significant part out of an awareness of, of the volume of disputes that will be generated and the opportunities that will be generated. Uh, and then in terms of connecting institutions on the investment arbitration side, I, I think one interesting development has been you see Chinese institutions based in Beijing, based in Shenzhen, 
developing their own sets of investment arbitration rules and, and certainly expressing interest in administering investment arbitrations. And, and in the past, that work has been done almost exclusively uh, by ICSID, which is part of the World Bank based in Washington, DC, and, and to some extent by the Permanent Court of Arbitration, the PCA, based in The Hague in the Netherlands. So now you see Chinese institutions uh, coming forward, expressing interest in playing a similar role in the area of investment arbitration. And I think that that is certainly part of the larger development of uh, Belt and Road raising the profile of uh, disputes, projects in Asia, disputes in Asia, and the role for institutions in Asia to take, take on a, a larger, more leadership uh, kind of role in administering and, and resolving those disputes. We see in this field uh, an increasingly uh, competitive dynamic between different institutions, whether they're courts or arbitral or mediation institutions. And one of the areas that these institutions compete upon is the ability uh, to offer a, um, a, an impartial hearing and uh, professional standards and all the rest of that. Um, so do you see the, the Chinese institutions um, addressing those concerns, perhaps making efforts to catch up, uh, particularly with the development of these rules, the attraction of uh, international personnel? Uh, what's your take on that? Right, well, I, I think it's very interesting. We've seen the development of the China International Commercial Court, and I, I, I've written a piece uh, and I've spoken on what I refer to as how to situate the China International Commercial Court, because I, I think the court can be seen from a few different angles. The, the first angle is we can see the court as, and at times it's been referred to as China's Belt and Road Court. Uh, and, and there is certainly support for that characterization. Uh, the CICC has established tribunals in Xi'an and Shenzhen, and it appears that geographically those were deliberate decisions with Xi'an facing west toward the, 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 um, the, the belt, the economic belt that, that stretches across Asia to Europe, and then with the, the, the tribunal in Shenzhen facing south toward the 21st century maritime Silk Road, so the placement of the two CICC tribunals in Xi'an and Shenzhen uh, reflects the geography of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so we can see it as, in a sense, China's Belt and Road Court. But at the same time, the development is part of a, lar a much larger global development of the recent emergence of international commercial courts in Asia, in the Middle East, in Europe. And so the rise of the CICC can be seen as part of that larger movement. And I think part of what has been driving these international commercial courts is uh, jurisdictions wanting to establish themselves as global centers for dispute resolution. And at the same time, recognizing that within the field of international arbitration that uh, there have been some concerns in particular about uh, arbitrator independence and partiality, rising costs, uh, to some extent a lack of institutionalization. And, and so I think for these international commercial courts, they, they see an opportunity that to provide sophisticated commercial dispute resolution, but in a more institutionalized setting with permanent judges, that that may have an appeal for some users. 
And so the CICC can be seen at the same time as part of that larger movement of this, these developments of uh, international commercial courts, again, in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. And the uh, China International Commercial Court, as, as you say, is part of this broader landscape of emerging international uh, commercial courts. It also has some rather unique features. Uh, it's particularly interesting that it is established under the Supreme People's Court and appears to be within the overall SPC structure. But on the other hand, it has this international expert committee. Uh, so I, I suppose it's early days with this institution and, and some scholars have been looking at its early cases and how many of them are related to the Belt and Road and how many of them are, are otherwise. Uh, but it will be very interesting to see where it fits in and what kind of cases it attracts. Um, and, and I suppose that will partly depend on the respective governing or the respective bargaining positions of uh, contracting parties in a commercial sense. That's right. And so for the CICC jurisdiction, there are different grounds for jurisdiction, uh, some consent-based, some not consent-based. And I, I've spoken in particular on this issue that, that I think that if the SPC, if the Supreme People's Court, if the ambition is for the CICC to stand alongside international commercial courts in jurisdictions such as Singapore, then I think the better direction to go would be in the direction toward more consent-based dispute resolution where parties are choosing to have their disputes resolved uh, by the, the, um, the CICC. But that raises the issue of who are the decision makers, who can act as counsel, and, and you've, you've mentioned this expert committee, and I think that's going to be one of the key issues is that for the CICC, at least under current Chinese law, the judges will be Chinese nationals, uh, but they can be supported by members of this expert committee, and the expert committee includes both Chinese nationals and foreign nationals. And the members of that expert committee can advise on issues of foreign law, they can advise on issues of international law, and they also can sit as mediators. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see in practice, uh, and I will say that the initial appointments to the expert committee, uh, these are some of the, the leading figures in the international arbitration world. I think the CICC and the SPC did a terrific job of, of choosing some of the very best of the best on this committee. But now we need to see in practice to what extent are the CICC judges in fact turning to these world-class experts for guidance in actual disputes. Indeed. And one of the other interesting things about the CICC is its apparent capacity to offer a number of different mechanisms of dispute resolution, uh, including mediation. Now, mediation you've mentioned before is, is very relevant to the overall mix of dispute resolution options, um, certainly under the Belt and Road, but more broadly in, in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and we see a number of developments, both legal in terms of the, the mediation convention, uh, but also political developments such as uh, 
the inclusion of mediation um, measures under the Belt and Road outcomes in Beijing. Um, how would you characterize the role of mediation in, in the developing connectivity as you identify it? Right. Well, when we think about the development of a Belt and Road dispute resolution regime and thinking about what will be the defining characteristics of that regime, I would place mediation right at the top. And, and as you mentioned, mediation is going to be central uh, to dispute settlement before the CICC and, and the SPC when issuing guidance and, and when establishing the CICC, they referred a few times to creating what they referred to as a one-stop commercial dispute resolution mechanism. And, and this idea of a one-stop mechanism, it, it reflects the earlier work of uh, the late Professor Frank Sander, Harvard Law School, who had developed the, the notion of a multi-door courthouse. And, and the multi-door courthouse, the idea is that you could have one central institution that parties uh, could bring their disputes and then the parties together with the institution could decide on a case-by-case -case basis what is the best strategy for resolving this dispute? Do, do we remain in court? Do we think about arbitration? Do we think about mediation? Do we think about med-arb? And, and I think that with the CICC embracing this one-stop model, and, and as I mentioned with the expert committee, the expert committee members being expressly authorized to mediate disputes arising uh, from the CICC, I think that mediation is going to play a central role. And you mentioned the Singapore Convention on Mediation. I thought it was extraordinary that the day the convention opened for signature, that you had dozens of states coming forward to sign the convention, which I, I've simply never seen before. And when you look at, a, at the list of the states that stepped forward to sign the convention on day one, it closely resembles the, the list of those who have signed Belt and Road MOUs. The, the, the membership in the Singapore Convention on Mediation is almost a shorthand for current membership in Belt and Road participation. So I, I think mediation is going to play a central role and again will be a defining characteristic when, when we think of what does it mean to have a Belt and Road dispute settlement regime. And just to bring it back to the, your overall framework, of course, all these developments are happening against the backdrop of the decoupling and the fracturing uh, that you identify. Uh, so is there, is there a skeptical view about these, uh, these new dispute resolution platforms? Can we anticipate that some parties will wish to step away from them, perhaps keep to well understood uh, investment and commercial arbitration uh, in in the usual places? Is that, is that something that is part of the mix? Sure. I, with respect to the, the CICC in particular, there has been a great deal of skepticism. What's been interesting is I've seen the skepticism, I, I've seen skepticism both outside China and within China, but I've seen two different kinds of skepticism. The skepticism outside China has focused, in my experience, has focused on questioning the impartiality of the judges. Uh, would this simply be a, a Chinese institution where the Chinese parties would routinely win? So outside China, I think the skepticism ha has focused on impartiality issues. Within China, the skepticism that I'm aware of has focused on capacity issues, that 
at least to date, all of the judges who have been appointed to the CICC, and so far there have only been a few dozen appointments, uh, those judges are at the same time still working in their roles as judges for the Supreme People's Court. Uh, and so there are very real questions domestically about the capacity of the CICC to establish itself as uh, a global player among these larger developments that I, I discussed. So I, I think there has been a lot of skepticism about the CICC, uh, but there's also been skepticism about Belt and Road more broadly, and I would say skepticism about, about the AIB as well. And I think it's noteworthy that in 2019, the AIB has been developing annual yearbooks on international law, and the AIB's 2019 yearbook focused on dispute resolution. And I find this to be particularly interesting because I, I think it's pretty clear from that 2019 yearbook that the AIB is certainly looking to the World Bank as a potential model because of, of course the World Bank played a central role in, in the development of the ICSID convention, the development of ICSID, and, and the World Bank over the decades has played that central role in resolving international investment disputes. And now we have the AIB based in Beijing certainly thinking about how it may uh, be able to play perhaps a similar kind of role in, in the resolution of international investment disputes. So, so as you mentioned, uh, and I would say that if the AIB does ultimately go in that direction, uh, the skepticism that, that certainly we've heard from, for example, US officials over the years, uh, that skepticism could be ex expected to extend to any efforts to establish a leadership role in dispute resolution. Uh, but at the same time, the, I think depending on how the skepticism is expressed, if it is expressed in a spirit of engagement, I think if parties are willing to engage with one another, then if there are concerns about independence, concerns about governance, then those are issues uh, that parties, that states can come together and discuss and adjust and respond to. Yes, and having attended last year's annual meeting of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank at Luxembourg when this second yearbook of law was launched, uh, one of the things that struck me was the emphasis which was being put on mediation in their discussions mm. as well. Mm. So, so we'll see how that develops. And of course, this is all uh, very much a developing story. So right. you've given us a lot to think about and, and to follow. I had one final question, Mark. If you could just reflect on your current uh, research and teaching at SDL, uh, virtual, of course, these days, but hopefully, um, hopefully not forever. Right. So on teaching, I, I would just note, I, I think the students have been incredible over the last several weeks that we've all obviously had to adjust to, to online. And um, we've been trying to come up with the best strategies we can and dealing with obstacles of, of Wi-Fi connections. And so... I think the students have just been terrific. And so it's been great to see how we've all made the adjustments we have to make. And then in terms of research, I will continue working on BRI dispute resolution. In particular, I'll be working closely with uh, Professor Mana Rezaman at University of Portsmouth. Uh, we will be working together on a project focused on BRI dispute resolution. I'm also working on, uh, in investment arbitration generally, there's a lot of attention on reform and I've been involved with the, the academic forum on ISDS uh, based in Geneva uh, and, and, and working on a paper looking at uh, the issue of incorrectness of ISDS decision-making uh, co-authored with Anna DeLuca, Martins Paparinskis, and uh, Catherine Titi. 
And I, I think the contribution we hope to make is that in the, in the literature, there's been a lot of attention on the inconsistency of ISDS uh, decision-making. Uh, we are stepping one step away from the issue of inconsistency and focusing instead on incorrectness uh, where there has not been as much scholarly attention. And so we're certainly looking to make a, a contribution and have a few uh, observations, a few thoughts on incorrectness that we hope can, can add to the discussion and, and certainly add to the, the larger discussions of investment arbitration reform. Well, Mark Feldman, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Stephen.